And that's why I'm firm when I say that Twin Galaxies was the birth of esports, because it was the first organization to unite the gamers and the arcades and the industry in a common international esports arena. By through the proxy of our rules and our procedures and our protocol, have every arcade be able to compete against any other arcade. <laughs> Hello, I'm Walter Day, founder of Twin Galaxies, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as always with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, Tony Temple. Hi. For this episode, we speak with none other than Mr. Walter Day. Not only the grandfather of esports, but the founder of the original world-famous Twin Galaxies video arcade in the Tumwa, Iowa. Walter waxes lyrical about the trials and tribulations of running a video arcade and international scoreboard during the golden age of gaming the films Chasing Ghosts and King of Kong, his brief stint as an oil futures trader, and, of course, Transcendental Meditation. We also get Walter on record about the recent furore surrounding Billy Mitchell's Donkey Kong high scores. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, you can buy us a virtual beer at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash podcast, And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience Podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Walter, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Let's, let's start by taking you back to November the 8th. 1982 you managed to get a photographer and reporter from life magazine to travel all the way to Atumwa uh, in iowa to take this iconic photograph of the best players in north america in front of machines from your arcade so we, we want to know how did you persuade a national magazine to come to your your small town and visit your small arcade it wasn't a national magazine. It was an international magazine. Oh, sorry. I'm that terribly was the, sorry, Walter. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. That was, that was Not like giving the, you enough kudos. Right. That was like the top of the food chain. It was a big deal, Life Magazine. And Life Magazine called up different entities in the video game trade, in the Koenop trade, because that's all there was back then. It was The world of video games was the world of Koenop. Yeah, of course. And so they invariably called manufacturers and told them they wanted to do a story on the incredible video game phenomena that was growing and burgeoning all over the world at that time. <clears throat> and they wanted to do a feature story on it in their, 19, in their January 1983 edition, which is essentially the 1982 year in review edition uh, that commemorated different highlights of the preceding year. So they called up the manufacturers and said, we want to do a story. And believe it or not, they got referred to me because we were recognized as the only game in town. We were recognized as the crossroads of the gamers 
uh, the organization that more than anybody else actually represented the consumer, the user of the games, the players. So they were sent to us and they called up and they, they, they admitted they didn't know what the story was going to be yet. And they were, and they were looking for advice. They were looking for recommendations. And I told them, look, all the best players in the world are connected to Twin Galaxies, and I can get them all to come here, and you could do a group photograph here at Twin Galaxies as the top players, and even photograph them as they have like maybe a playoff or a contest or something. Mm -hmm. At first, they didn't go for it, oh. and it wasn't until the third phone call that they kind of relented and said, okay, we're going to come. We're going to come. Can you bring these players? And I said, yes. And I got them to agree to go to bat for me mm -hmm. and, and make a statement of recommendation that could be presented to the parents because these are sixteen, seventeen, yeah, and eighteen I, year old kids. I, I was I was kind of intrigued with that. Is that was it was it difficult to persuade the parents that you weren't initiating these kids into some kind of cult? Um, oh yeah, it, okay. oh yeah. I mean, it, it 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 took the efforts of Life Magazine to make it happen because it was groundbreaking. I don't think people realize how groundbreaking that photograph was mm -hmm. to have the families let their kids go. In fact, it's, it's a new thing. Video game phenomenon is a new thing. It's a questionable, suspicious thing. Mm. And now their kids are being taken off to some small town in Iowa to be <laughs> photographed allegedly by Life magazine. It was just so specious and so suspicious that Life magazine had to go to bat and have a letter. I think it was just a handwritten message that I gave. I don't think they gave me a letter. They gave me a handwritten message. Okay. And uh, and I had to share that with all the different parents. And about four, I think about four or five sets of parents, if I remember correctly, and I've never told anybody this before, simply said no, because it was just too, it was just too scary to them. I mean, imagine how scary this was, because it was a brand new phenomenon, a video game phenomenon, and, and they didn't know what would go on. So, so... <laughs> So it must eight, be very, very persuasive, uh, Walter. Very well, persuasive. there was. I think there was destiny behind the whole thing. Okay. Because I've, I've, I've admitted to myself and to other people that it's almost like the forces of nature were trying to bring this video game phenomenon to life. And you know how water flows, and it flows through channel. It flows through the declivities when it's flowing downhill. It just finds the path that's easiest. Uh, the video game age was flowing through a tumbler. It was flowing through Twin Galaxies. It was flowing wow. through Walter Day. It was, a, it, it was big. <laughs> to be very frank, it was much bigger than me. The only thing I brought to the table was an enthusiasm, a love for it, a belief in it, and the dynamic energy to put together the creative action steps to actually facilitate it. So that yeah. was my... That was my volunteer. Everything yeah. else was on, on automatic, like the forces of nature were doing the whole thing. Well, so, you, you sound evangelical then, and you sound evangelical now. Um, amazing. Um, can I just ask the actual practicalities of that shoot? Because you managed to get all these arcade machines out into the street. I mean, that must have been a nightmare, Walter. Oh, well, at first, I wanted them to photograph the group in front of that big, colorful, famous Twin Galaxies back class. It was it was finished the night before all the kids arrived. So it was finished on November 6th by Bill Gretzinger, who's in California now, but was from Ohio, but was living in Fairfield, Iowa at the time when he was an artist. And it was completely groundbreaking also. The idea of doing that big back class is a, you know how when you go to events and they do photo shots and you get interviewed and there'll be, there'll be a repeating logo on a backdrop behind you for the event or for the sponsor mm -hmm. or something like that. So I was inventing a permanent backdrop 
backdrop that would be featured in all ongoing ceremonies, celebrations, and things like that. Marketing. (laughs) And so I wanted to get Life Magazine to photograph the kids in front of that backdrop, and they did. Some of those photographs of them posing in front of the backdrop were used in Chasing Ghosts. They were a main feature in Chasing Ghosts. If you watch Chasing Ghosts again, you'll see that photograph where they're all posed sitting on the floor in front of the back back glass. I see, I see. see. So that was the the first photograph. The next thing is they had it in their mind that they wanted to take, because it was because it was Iowa, and Iowa's hog manufacturing and cornfields, they right. wanted to bring to the people's attention that the uniqueness of this global phenomena, because Twin Galaxies was getting international inquiries. We were a global phenomena. Mm-hmm. So essentially, um, they wanted to emphasize the fact that this unbelievable thing this happening of all places, a, a rural yes. area of Iowa surrounded by cornfields. So they had the plans to take the video games out into the cornfields and do some sort of group photograph. <laughs> but I didn't know they were doing that. I didn't even know they were doing that research until they came back after a day's excursion out into the fields. And they said to me, it's not going to work. I said, what's, gonna, what's not going to work? I said, it's not going to work taking the games out into the fields. Yeah. So, so I, said, I bet you were slightly relieved, weren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I said, well, do it here in the street. Right. Either I said do it in the street or they came up with it on their own. But wow. it's decided that we take six of the games out into the street and set them up. And when the, when the sun's uh, rising in the morning, like at eight in the morning, they would do, they would do a group photograph. Yeah. So we invited maybe 22 or 23 or 25 people. I can't remember, but some parents mm-hmm. just said no. And 18 showed up mm-hmm. and the kids went wild. They were party <laughs> animals. And the girls... Okay. The girls couldn't believe it. There were, for the first time ever in the world, there were video game groupies. And, uh, right. And, and, and <laughs> okay. every guy seemed to have, I think, every guy seemed to have a girlfriend. And two of the guys got drunk. And, sl- and when the photo session happened, they were asleep on the kitchen floor of someone's house. So they came up, oh, they arrived a couple hours later saying, what's going on? And we told them, you oh, missed the photograph. Missed, they missed so that moment. was that was Kent Ferries of Calgary. And Matthew Brass of Helena, Montana. Well, that's kind of interesting because they might have missed the photo, but there's someone else that's missing from that photo, and that is you. So why why were you not in it? Well, well, well. When I when the photograph was when the photograph was happening, I was so in love with the idea of putting them on the putting them on the pedestal and honoring them that they actually called for me. You'll see that passage in the Chasing Ghost movie. They, they demanded, in a sense, that I come up and be in the photograph. But I said, no, no, this is your glory. I want this to be all for you, which I never regretted. But however, if I did it all over again, I would be in the photograph. Yeah, so, you do, because I think, so you do regret it a little bit. But, it's such yeah, an iconic yeah. image. You yeah, must yeah. regret it a little bit. Yeah, because, because I, I think I deserve it. Yeah, I, I we totally agree. Now, the, the fortunate thing is, even though you weren't on that particular photograph, you've been on many photographs, and you do get recognised partly because you always wear a black and white referee's shirt. When did you start doing that, Walter? Well, I I wore three piece suits through all those okay. early adventures. Three piece right. suits. I started wearing a referee shirt at the That's Incredible event. That's Incredible uh, came and filmed the championship. 
that the final round was concluded in their Los Angeles Hollywood uh, studio. That's a TV program, just that's, for our listeners. That's a, that's a TV, TV program. program that was on America's ABC TV. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I wore referee outfit there. But I didn't start wearing the referee outfit until 1997 when I was working, oh, okay. when I was working, uh, because I retired for about 11 years because I, I was so fed right, up with it. Right. But when you came back, you took on this kind of referee's persona. Yeah. And I, we, we, we just wondered that, you know, when you put on that black and white uh, referee shirt, is it is it kind of like you're becoming a character going well, on stage? Well, I was, I, was I was once in a room full of people. And suddenly I put the referee shirt on and everybody in the room changed and a cheer went through the room and just everybody was different to me. I mean, (laughs) the thing is, the thing is apparently the imagery of it became so much more iconic that I didn't recognize the degree with which it had become part of the, uh, Hmm. you know, the, uh, the, the cultural iconness, (laughs) the makeup award, iconography, iconography, Iconography. that's that's a good one. The, The cultural iconography of the situation. Okay. But yes, in fact, it gets so interesting. It's almost like I feel my brain change when I put the referee shirt on because okay. it, because a different public dynamic is being directed at me, a different expectation and a whole different energy individually from me. And it's a group phenomenon with other people. Uh, I hope I'm not becoming too intellectual with you, but I'm just trying to- We're, try, we're desperately trying to keep up, but thank you. I'm yes. trying to grasp how this actually is a real phenomenon that happens. But I think you can see that. Yeah, we can definitely see it. Um, just one thing, you you only ran the the Twin Galaxies Arcade for, for a few years in the 80s, and yet it seems to have defined a lot of the rest of your life. Does that ever seem strange, Walter? Well, that was most emblematic of the time. That was when video games were establishing themselves as something real, something big. In fact, a larger-than-life phenomena mm-hmm. that would remain a part of the, the cultural norm from then on. And Twin Galaxies was there as a vehicle and a conduit to bring that to life. Walter, put that shirt back on for a moment. You're widely regarded as being the inspiration for uh, Mr. Litwack in uh, Disney's Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, did you? I'm assuming you're aware of this um, inspiration for said film. I've autographed so many autographs as Mr. Litwack. That's the fun. <laughs> that's almost the funnest thing of all, because it's just parents get excited and they almost melt. And they say to the kids, oh, no, come on, Johnny, you have to meet Mr. Litwack. And it just melts my heart because kids will be awestruck that this is the real Mr. Litwack. So it's an interesting, charming experience that's all about heart value, all about heart value, because that's the relationship with which I engage in these kids and other people who say, wow, there's Mr. Litwack. And how did that happen? When, when, when Chasing Ghosts was first being made, it was brought to Pixar and shown as a free presentation to the entire staff of Pixar poured into their in-house studio and watched it. And they fell in love with the movie. And I was told that they fell in love with, <laughs> with Walter Day. It's easily so done, later Walter. on, uh, 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 and also Walt Disney Animation saw it too. Yeah. So I think with Walt Disney Animation, somewhere along the line, privately, the internal artists decided they were going to make... I was told this directly by someone who was a former employee... They said that it was decided that they'd make a tribute character 
in my honor. Yeah. But it's done in such a way that if they ever got called on the carpet about it, they could say, oh, it was Mr. Smith. Right. Because it looks like a little bit like him, but it also looks like me. Yeah. And also, and also the referee shirt it has on is my referee shirt. And it's a very rare one. It's not a common one. Right. But I was told directly that it was intended to be me. Yeah. And I told them how many times, how many times I've had legal advice and pressure put on me, even to the point of scolding that I should take legal action against them and try and get a big payday for it, for them using my image without it. But here is my take on it. It was such a, such a divinely kind, loving gift that how could I bite a gift horse in the mouth? They went and did something that was complete, completely intended as a positive gesture. So I resisted a lot of pressure uh, that uh, you should be out there suing them and getting your due for them using your image. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a, it, it's an affectionate homage, isn't it, Walter? It's um, as you say. So uh, I'm I'm not sure what ground would have been gained potentially financially. But then, but then when I told another guy who works at Disney, yeah, Kenny Hardy in Southern California, he said, "Oh man, you do not want to sue Disney. They have an army of lawyers." And it would go on forever and <laughs> ever would, and ever. What, yeah, one would imagine. One would imagine. Um, Walter, let's move on. You you may be forever associated with um, Atumwa, but you were born and raised in California, I believe, and you turned 18 in May 1967, just before the Summer of Love. So did you wear flowers in your hair, Walter, back then? Okay, so here's my story. Okay, <laughs> I was born May 14th, 1949, in Oakland, California, you know, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm now 73. And uh, this was a very inspirational, very transformational part of my life. In fact, I've been writing that chapter for an autobiography I'm working on. Uh-huh. Someone actually has put me up to writing my autobiography. And so that chapter is being written right now. In fact, I just finished it and sent it into the publisher. Um, Go on. But, give, but, it, give us the early but draft. essentially, <laughs> I grew up in the Bay Area and I grew up in the student housing on the Berkeley UC campus, University of California, Berkeley. So I grew up on the famous you know, Telegraph Ave in that area for a couple of years. Right. But then by the time I was five, my parents bought a house in Anaheim, California. And I grew up a couple of miles from Disneyland. We lived in Anaheim before Disneyland opened. Mm-hmm. We moved into our house on October 30th, 1954. A pioneering family, one of the pioneering families of, of the or of the Orange County boom, boom that happened after World War II. Mm-hmm. My father was a wounded war veteran who had fought in the Battle of the Bulge, who got machine gunned by the Nazis, a Nazi machine gun nest during the war, but lived mm-hmm. there, survived to, to talk about it and have children. And uh, and but when I was fourteen, because my sisters were having mental problems, they moved back to their hometown, Lynn, Massachusetts because there was better mental health facilities there in Massachusetts. And so I ended up going right. to high school in Lynn, Massachusetts. So it was in Boston that I grew up and went to high school and went to college at Salem State College in Newman Prep. And I was going to Newman Prep in the summer of 67 to make up good grades so they could go to college. And it was at that time that the hippie culture became lodged in Lynn, Massachusetts. It became turned on the summer of love in Boston. So by the fall of 67, I started smoking marijuana, and then I started taking LSD. So I took marijuana, mm-hmm. and L- I took LSD about 15 times. And, I, uh, and LSD, of course, and marijuana were much weaker. They were mild back then compared to nowadays. And the reason I was taking it was for happiness, because the stress of the time was intense, and this would be give a sense mm-hmm. of relief. 
So the- just with your sisters, you said that you may not want to delve into this whatsoever, and in, in which and and if you don't, that's absolutely fine, of course. But you said they suffered from from mental health challenges. You would you care to elaborate oh, yeah. on that a little? Or? They have. They suffer from schizophrenia, so they had to be so they okay. had to be dealt okay. with. So I've written it all up in detail in my uh, in my autobiography. And so this was the source of your stress, Walter. Well, that was probably part of it. You know, when you get older, mm-hmm. the psychiatrists say, "Oh, this has been stressful to you." I just rolled right through it. I had a beautiful girlfriend, so we were very involved in a. I went to college, and I just lived as close as I could to the normal life, as normal as the hippie culture at that time would allow. So in the summer of 68, I did go to Haight-Ashbury. It was not the summer of love anymore. It was now a place of junkies and bad energy and stuff mm. like that. So I didn't stay long. And I traveled down to Southern California. On August 3rd and 4th, they went to the Newport Pop Festival, which at that time was the biggest pop festival in pop music history, which was the first festival to have 100,000 paid subscribers, which was very cool. And it had Jefferson Airplane and Eric Bird and the Animals and Iron Butterfly and Steppenwolf and Electric Flag and Led nice. Zeppelin. And it was a, and Tiny Tim and Sonny and Cher and Chambers Brothers and Cotton, James Cotton Blues Band and, um, and Great, Grateful Dead. Were you, still, were you still experimenting with the psychedelics at this point, Walter? I was still. So I quit taking drugs after I had some experiences of what you would call higher states of consciousness under the influence uh-huh. of drugs. So I stopped taking the drugs. That's a reason to carry uh, on, Walter, usually. I mean. No, no. No, I mean, uh, interestingly enough, I responded that, oh, I want higher states of consciousness to happen. And and I suddenly yeah. realized that drugs can't do it. They will only hurt me. So I quit taking the drugs and I learned transcendental meditation, which immediately started purifying the nervous system of the stress that got put in there by taking the drugs. Drugs cause stress in the system. And the and how I discovered Transcendental Meditation is I went to a lecture one night, but the guy who was going to give the lecture didn't show up. And I started describing the way I felt. I felt awful after I quit the drugs. I had depression and anxiety. My back hurt constantly. My feet hurt constantly. I couldn't sleep properly and I couldn't digest properly. And a guy I was talking to said, wait, I had all that stuff too. But I got rid of all those symptoms when I started practicing Transcendental Meditation. So he told me where to go learn it. And I went and learned Transcendental Meditation. And all those bad symptoms went away within like a month or so. So I was sold. I was impressed. I was impressed not only that it cured me of all that stuff, but also was making my mind clear and creative and bright again. And that like my like uh, uh, intelligence began to come back into the brain and creativity. So I was so sold on it. I said, this is great. I got to help other people get this too. So I went out and actually got trained to be a teacher of transcendental meditation. And I taught transcendental meditation for the whole decades of the 70s. We'll go into college. Well, well, just just to cut in slightly, Walter, I don't know if you're familiar with, I mean, without being too reductive, it's the the, the transcendental meditation does seem to be the in vogue thing with... uh, many people in the how do i say it the heterodox media space and i'm just wondering being as you've talked about psychedelics and lsd do you have an opinion on this um uh, new trend for microdosing being of some help for people with um with depression and other mental conditions uh, i'm i'm personally because of what i went through so on a personal level uh i i'm too suspicious of it so i wouldn't do it myself sure but if they get something out of it, then that's something that's beyond my experience to judge on, because I try not to be too judgmental. Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, but transcendental meditation, 
if you don't know what it is, it's something you actually do. It's not a theory. It's mm -hmm. not a philosophy. It's not a religion. You sit down in a yep. chair twice a day, close your eyes for 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and you do this mental technique, which immediately, immediately on the spot begins to have a major effect on your body and on your mind, and your mind and body together slip into what they call a fourth state of human consciousness called transcendental consciousness. The scientists call it a condition of, 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 uh, of restful hypometabolic alertness, yep. and uh, to give it a scientific name. And essentially, it's a point that has the body and mind in neutral or in depressed at a deeper point than the deepest point in the night's sleep. And in that condition of tremendous deep inner rest, your body throws out deep-seated stresses that you've been carrying around your whole life. Yeah. And it might sound simple, but well, it is simple, but it's so amazing because something as simple as that alters the whole course of your life because you start using more and more of your mental potential, more and more of your creativity, more happiness comes automatically and your energy level goes up just from practicing those two 20-minute sessions a day, Transcendental Meditation. And because it's so effective and so real, that actually works and does it from the very first time, that that's why it's becoming a big deal and that's why it's so in vogue. Yeah, you sound you sound like a student of Bob Roth, Walter. Is that Would, would it be true to... Um, I've known Bob for 50 years. You have? Interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a whole separate podcast. I uh, know I'm fascinated by this. Um, but the frankly. thing is, you got to realize um, it works. It works for everybody. And even if you think you're on top of the world and your life is as good as it can get, transcendental meditation will make it better. So everybody should try it. Yeah. And I can't speak highly enough of it. Mm. I'm going to bring you back down to earth, if you like, though, and back to video games. Earth coming I in. Do a, yeah, I apologize. Um, I could I could listen to you talk about that for much longer, but um, seeing as you only have about an hour, at one point in the seventies, Walter, you you had a business selling commemorative newspapers, and in and nineteen eighty, I think you became an oil futures trader of all things. At least that's quite quite the different quite the career change. So we we still trying to find a vocation, Walter, something you could really throw yourself into. What was what was oil futures all about at that point for you? Well, let's talk about the newspapers for a moment. Let's yes, I love I love to do things. I love to do things that I love. And mm. of a big history buff, big history buff. And, when, and when, when Kennedy was assassinated November 22nd, 1963, uh, we were discussing about the historical significance. Walter, are we going to find out who assassinated Kennedy? Is this going to be the podcast? <laughs> That's a good one. Were you on the grassy knoll, Walter? Uh, I didn't. <laughs> the, grass, the grassy knoll started a couple of years later. Uh, uh, so we started talking. Everybody was putting away newspapers with the assassination headlines. Yeah. And then to top it off, someone outdid us all and brought in to my ninth grade civics classroom, which is that variation on history at the time, brought in two old newspapers, an 1864 uh, Harper's Weekly and an 1863 Boston Daily Journal. And I was hypnotized by them on a lot, to a degree that I can't begin to describe or convey to you. I was in love was studying and reading old newspapers. And that very night, I went downtown Lynn, Massachusetts uh, to, main, to, to Union Street, which was our main street, and went to antique stores until I bought an 1897 newspaper and read it about 10 times. I couldn't believe just the way it made me feel, the, the emotions. By the time I graduated from high school, I had 1,000 old newspapers dating back to 1792. 
and I was making plans to be a history teacher and use the old newspapers as an actual format, as an educational discipline in the classroom. And so later on, I started getting more and more newspapers and actually would go on the road and be interviewed, be interviewed as an old newspaper historian who would sell them to people who collect them and people would want headlines with the fall of the Alamo or the charge of the light brigade or the sinking of the Titanic or Custer's last stand or dozens and dozens of other things, the battle of Gettysburg. And I would have, and I loved what I was doing and I'd be in the news all the time. It's amazing how many interviews I've had over the years for being a newspaper historian. And when I became, in 1980, I became an oil broker. That was not done because they love it. That was done as an adventure and also because I needed a job. So in Fairfield, the company started. Then the company moved down to Houston so they could be closer to the to the brokers and the majors, you know, like Conoco and Tentacle that we had to deal with. So I would be on the phone all day uh, making phone calls between uh, what were called traders like uh, Apex Oil and uh, United Fuels. And then the majors like Exxon and Shell trying to put together deals in the oil spot market, just like any other marketing, you know, buy and sell, try and buy low and sell high. And so we did that. I did that for only four months before I quit because I didn't like the lifestyle because I I had to go. I had to go. I had to go and meet in bar, meet in nightclubs with oil, oil traders uh, while strippers would dance on the table. Right. So so I just didn't like that. So I quit and I merged into another thing that I love to do. One time, one time when I, in December of 74, when I was at a special course for people who were teachers of Transcendental Meditation here in Fairfield, Iowa, someone loaned me a book and it was on Elvis. Thank you very much. And I turned the page and there was a picture of Elvis's high school yearbook. And I thought, and I thought, well, that's cool. Wouldn't it be fun to have the copy of that yearbook? And as I turned the light out and went to sleep, I began to think, oh, wait a minute, wouldn't it be cool to have lots of different celebrities' high school yearbooks? So I began to do research, and I thought, I could do this, and this would be fun if I could just find one wealthy person who wanted to hire me constantly to find yearbooks for them. Okay. Well, anyway, that actually happened. A wealthy person had me hired, and I was making money for a while, buying and selling high school yearbooks to him. And uh, I went through about 200 celebrities, and at one, I think I had about 40 copies of Madonna's yearbook. I had a I, I, I had the, the high school in Oakland, California, awesome. go in their basement and come up with four copies of Clint Eastwood's yearbook. And, uh, so I had all these high school yearbooks. Eventually, the guy took it over, and I retired with the plans to do my music, which is the, actually the biggest, biggest bright light on my, uh, you know, among, among all my agendas. Well, yeah, that's, that's something you're doing at the moment, isn't it, Walter? Yeah. And, and, and t- I think Tony will pick that up at the end. Walter, when did... When did video games um, appear in your life, Walter? Well, when I was an oil broker, I wasn't doing well as an oil broker because I was handling a, a, a product a product called Six Oil. And Six Oil was the big heavy-duty fuel. It was the crude fuel that would be burned like in a boiler in the bottom of like a big institution or a high school building. And okay. so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we only made, me and my partner only made six deals in the course of four months. Whereas the people selling oil were making 15, 20 deals a day. So we're making yeah, hardly anything yeah. and they're making literally a fortune. They're becoming wealthy overnight. So I started thinking of other things to do on the side. And I decided to do a day's who's who in the petroleum industry. Uh, an actual who's who for the petroleum industry, which didn't exist pri- prior to that. I found an investor who had worked with me and he put up some money and we started working on it. We had layouts and designs and 
and did letters and mailing. And we had about 130 biographies from important leaders. The, the important leaders of the industry went for it. They gave us, they gave us their, uh, their biographies and we're laying them out on the pages to, uh, to actually publish the book. And then the guy who was my partner said one night, Oh, I can't do this anymore tonight. I got to go play Space Invaders. Right. And I says, okay. what the heck is Space Invaders? And he said, oh, I'll show you. And so it was Houston. So the, the big highway that looped around the city, I think was 410 or 480, something like that. And out on that loop was a Malibu Grand Prix. Right. Yeah. Which was famous, which was famous for its arcade games, but also for its two-third size or one-third size uh uh, fuel injected automobiles or something like that. I may have it. I may have the description wrong. And so uh, it was famous for its race, famous for its race cars. So uh, he took me in, and I walked in the door, and I immediately saw a whole bank of berserk machines shouting at me, "Kill the humanoid!" And I go, "What the heck?" And he takes me to a Space Invaders machine, and before the night's over, I'm addicted to it. So what was it, Walter? Was it was it Berserk or Space Invaders? What was your first video? Space Invaders. Okay. Or Space Invaders. Space Invaders. So I played Space Invaders and addicted to it. And I started playing Space Invaders a couple nights a week. Then I discovered Pac-Man and I started playing that a couple nights a week. So what was just a couple nights a week habit became a three nights three nights uh, a, a week uh, obsession. Well, and it then, sounds it sounds like whatever you do, Walter, you throw yourself into it one hundred and five percent, right? <laughs> At least. And then it became a, then it became four times a week uh, 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 addiction. Yeah. <laughs> so I became I fell yeah. in love with video games, and that's what I love to do. Yeah. And I had an unending amount of energy. I don't have any of the yeah. energy left. I have no energy left for playing video games. <laughs> I can. But imagine. I had all the energy in the world. And I couldn't believe how much I loved playing video games. So where did you play I, said games, Walter? In bars, airports, everywhere. and so on? Or was, it, was, it, was it primarily in went, arcades? They were, they were everywhere at the time, right? When I went on the road selling old newspapers, there, I there. would stop at every arcade I could and play the games. Then I would start writing the scores down. The birth of scorekeeping yep. started then. I would be, uh, see, I was mm -hmm. very, very fascinated by excellence in video game playing. And also, mm -hmm. here's an interesting phenomenon. There are people in today's esports industry who believe that they've initiated or caused the birth of video game playing as a spectator sport. They think, oh, mm -hmm. well, well of which not, of course sure. is pre yeah. preposterous. I can tell you from mm -hmm. direct experience from even that very first night there that when someone plays well and they're getting a high score, a crowd will gather around them because people love to watch excellence in video game playing. They love watching the best and they love to watch those incredible stellar star-studded performances. So if the but what's different now is that the technology allows people to broadcast their game playing and for other people to witness the gameplay at a distance so that the spectator sport basis is now truly global, whereas in the beginning it was just whoever was in the room with you in that particular arcade. However, the spirit of, of video game playing as a spectator sport was alive and well from the very beginning, and today's esports people did not invent it. So their claim is 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 just not not accurate. But they don't know they don't know better because they weren't around back then. Hi Walter, um, I wonder if we can sort of um, separate the tracking of high scores and Twin Galaxies as a as a as a physical arcade as a business and. Uh, when you decided to open Twin Galaxies at the arcade in November 1981, 
I wonder if you can give us a sense of, of what you were observing that drove you to enter, you know, the industry. Um, I mean, you know, there seemed to be something of a gold rush going on in the States. I, I just wonder if you can give give us a sort of feel for what 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 was going on with the arcade phenomena as you as as you tend to describe it. Well, first of all, there is the age-old tradition of the family recreation center, but very rarely was a family recreation center a true family recreation center. It was usually a hangout for kind of the rougher elements. There'd be a pool table, there'd be a couple pinball, there'd be something else, and maybe an old vintage video game. And they usually were a hangout place that families would not be going to. Mm -hmm. With the advent of the modern video games, it turned out that the financial reality of the Family Recreation Center changed overnight and caught the attention of doctors and lawyers and dentists and other professionals who saw the incredible money that was being generated by the games and wanted to cash in on it. And so the uh, so a gold rush came. The company that was vending the games, because we didn't have our own games, we were vending them and splitting it on a 50-50 split with a company in, the, in Iowa. They were vending 25 different arcades because there was incredible, you know the expression Oklahoma land rush, to grab locations. So for the first couple months of Twin Galaxies, I spent almost all my time on the road going around Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois, opening up arcades, trying to, trying to open up arcades and find locations that were free of any competition. And in the course of opening up one in a Kirksville, Missouri, which was our twin, our, our twin arcade down in Kirksville, Missouri, two other arcades opened up within 200 feet of our location. And our income went down like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. You, you know, when we opened up our, our arcade in Kirksville and we did the first week's collection, do you know what games were the two games that had the most coins in the box that jammed the coin box? Oh, I'm going to say. We're talking about like December 5th, uh, 1981. Uh, asteroids? What do you think? Asteroids and Space Invaders. Well, you know, it's a smaller arcade. It's like, it was like 30 games. It was in, in a town of maybe about 11,000 students. So out of the 30 games we had, the biggest money earner was Frogger with $430 in it. And the second one was Berserk with four hundred and five dollars in it. Wow! So it's and, and and this was over what period of time? Uh, over about eight days. Wow! That's because Frogger's freaking awesome. Frogger's pretty awesome. <laughs> Frogger's pretty amazing. I love Frogger. You know what the other another you know an other interesting thing that I'll make an aside on was when we opened up our tumble location. The very first day, the guy who was running the cab company came in the door from across the street and says, "I don't know what it is, but the moment you guys turned your games on." We lost all radio communication with all our cabs, and we and it's affecting our business. And so we think we think you did it. And I said that's ridiculous. It's not possible. Stranger Things, uh, yeah. Hawkins Laboratory. That, that's interesting. So, um, but but the, here's the, but here's the the punch the punchline of the story. So the next day, he was still convinced that we had already, we had I think we had had our games on the whole time, and he was still over really upset uh, that that he was losing money because he couldn't send messages out to the cabs because it was all mind-boggled by something, interference. And at that moment, the police came in and they heard the conversation. They said, wait, we're having the same problem with our transmissions with our uh, patrol cars. So all these radio transmissions were interfered with by something going on. 
But anyway, my partner went to the back room and started switching banks of games off and on. And the cab guy runs in the door and says, whatever you did, just do it again. And so through experimentation, we identified one single game, one single game that was causing this phenomena. And we had to take it out. And we took it out. All the interference went away and everything was back to normal. Was it Polybius? Was that what <laughs> yeah, it was? It was just about well, actually, it was the, the second one, Super Polybius. Wait, hold okay. on. <laughs> you're, you're good, Walter. You're good. <laughs> well, you haven't guessed. You haven't guessed yet. What game no, was go it? On. I'll, I'll just. Was it a cinem- uh, cinematronics? Something by cinematronics. It's Star Castle. Well, those are all good guesses, but it was Kix, Q-I-X. It was it was creating an energy field that was interfering with transmission, and I've never come across anybody else yet who had who's had that experience. Maybe a ground wire fell out or something. Who, who knows? Um, Walter, you mentioned multiple locations there. Is that how the name Twin Galaxies came about, just out of interest? Well, we were driving. When we were renovating the place, me and my partner, John Block, were driving to the location. And then I suddenly blurted out, we can call it Twin Galaxies. And he told me later that he thought that I came up with that because it was two of us and we're, we were the Twin Galaxies. But I don't, I don't remember that being the reason. I just remember blurting it out like it came out of the clear blue. It was completely, completely not connected to anything as far as I can remember. Mm-hmm. So, Walter, was was opening an arcade relatively easy? I mean, I, you know, people who set up businesses talk I about was, it. I was making it up as they went along. And there was so much happiness at that time. It was very idyllic. Just so much happiness. Just being a part of this incredible age. And uh, and that, that Oklahoma land rush, we were rushing all over the place trying to beat other people to locations. But we only got one other location open. And the rest just couldn't happen because there was too much competition. And eventually, eventually, uh, lots of there were lots of small towns that had three arcades, because uh, one of the main reasons that the video game age collapsed was because one, the players were getting bored with the games and spending less and less quarters. There were too many arcades, and they were all killing each other by splitting an ever dwindling number of quarters, and they were trying to beat each other with a new game phenomena. The kids would get bored with your games, so you buy a new game, and suddenly all the kids will flock back to your arcade. And when you buy a new game, you're paying essentially about $3,000, which was almost the cost of a new car. So most of your games for most of those arcades were games that were mortgaged, and they had a debt owed on each of the games. A lot of arcades were like that. A lot of arcades. So they had a showroom of automobiles that they were paying on. And the amount of income being brought in was less and less and less and less and less and less. So then your rival arcade down the street would buy an even newer game. And suddenly everyone abandoned your arcade and go down to the street. Uh, and so you wouldn't have your earlier games paid off. So you'd buy another new game to try and bring them back. So anyway, this situation went on a lot of places until finally they couldn't pay the mortgages. And trucks would pull up and foreclose on all the games. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting you say that. I was going to ask you about um, business plans, and it sounds like you outlined it quite well. So, Walter, could you d- just sort of talk us through? So, Atari build a missile command cabinet. How how does that cabinet end up on the floor of the arcade in Twin Galaxies? What's what are the steps? Who who do Atari sell that machine to? What do, what do those guys then do with that machine and how does it end up with you so that a 13-year-old Tony Temple can sit and play it? 
Well, we never had a missile command. Shame on you, Wilson. I agree. Shame on it was there. It was there. Uh, it was the uh, the provider just never brought one. He brought whatever he wanted to bring. He was in control. Okay. So essentially, uh, the uh, the manufacturers would work through a network of distributors. In the morning, there were two distributors, and the games. They were all. They all had turfs. They all had areas that they had jurisdiction over, and and most of the distributors wouldn't travel on the honor system out of their area. They would handle not only sales to that area, but also customer service and repairs. So we had what was called an operator, a route operator, a vendor who had a big vending route of four thousand games and twenty five arcades filled with his games. So the the route operator would buy the games, usually on credit, from the distributor, and the distributor would get it from the manufacturer. So that was the as far as I can tell, the layout of the Koenop industry back then. Some just some distributors would start getting wild and start going to other people's areas. So it caused a lot of stress between them. But generally they were they were all pretty honor bound to stay in their area. And they were, give us, they were given cities, they were given regions, so that uh, Namco would award uh, the Iowa region to a distributor and that they would stick there and do marketing there. So we wouldn't deal with distributor. Uh, we would deal just with their own route operator, and uh, that's who would provide the games to us. And, and so if I, go in, if I walked into Twin Galaxies and I, and I, and I dropped a dollar into four different machines how how is that dollar been? it would be 50 cents for the uh, a route operator and 50 cents for twin galaxies got it so did they turn up with keys once a week to empty the cash boxes exactly or, or were you oh okay so you never had keys to your no, machines no they had the keys to the machines later on under a different route operator we had keys but uh but that was much later that was years later okay so that's interesting so the the route operator had a inventory of a certain number of machines so would he literally rotate those machines around the arcade so if, if there were let's say five arcades within a 50 mile radius of twin galaxies would he simply shuffle the machines around every few months exactly and would- i remember the i remember the night i came back to the arcade and tune it was a huge crowd there the reason there was a huge crowd there is because in the course of the afternoon uh moon patrol and jungle king had been brought in and it was a huge phenomena. And there were crowds of people waiting in line to play the two games. And when those games were brought in, other games were brought out. They they shuffled them out, as you describe it. Would would you ever have an opportunity to influence what machines you got? So could you pick up the phone to the route guy and go, "Listen, no no one's playing Moon Patrol anymore. Could you could you change it out? It's sitting here doing nothing, or was it entirely out of your it was hands?" Pretty much on. It was pretty much on automatic. A few times they made wow. requests, like we requested Miss Pacnet again and again. Hmm. But uh, uh, when the governor came, the Twin Galaxies to declare us, declare Atumwa, the video game capital of the world, recognize us as the video game capital of the world and honor us. The, the local distributor from Des Moines came and said, where's your Miss Pacman? And I said, we don't have it. And he says, that's a shame you don't have it. I'll have to talk to your, your operator. But we never got a, we, we never got a Miss Pacman. When the Miss Pac-Man, when the Life magazine photograph was photographed, the Miss Pac-Man that we had in the photograph was borrowed from the bar across the street. And a little old lady who ran the bar with a froggy voice said, I hope that Life magazine realizes we expect full credit in Life magazine for the use of our Miss Pac-Man. Brilliant. Never happened, though. 
So um, just to close off that then, Walter, it, it, it sounds like at the time there was, a, there was a feeling that, you know, open an arcade, get hold of one of these distributors, stroke vendors, put arcade machines in it, and it will just work. So there wasn't, it didn't really matter that you were in the middle of nowhere in the middle of America or whether there was passing traffic. It, it, it was open an arcade, put the machines in, and the kids are going to turn up with quarters in their pockets. Was is that? Uh, I was completely blinded by it. I, I, yeah. I couldn't believe how wonderful it was, and I thought it was going to last forever. Yeah. And I thought we'd have a chain of these arc twin galaxies stretching all over the place. But of course, more and more business people started opening up rival arcades until, until there were like, I think there were three or four arcades in Twin Galaxies uh, in Otumwa, and Twin Galaxies couldn't make it. So I was keeping it alive by living in the place so that I, I couldn't, that I didn't generate my own expenses and uh, living off the Coke machine. So it was a very, very terrible time. And when Twin Galaxies got shut down, it was with great relief that I walked away from the place because it was so hard on my health and on my happiness. Sure. But I just believed in it so much just believed in it so much that I wanted to see it last because it was a service to everybody and it was had been a fun experience that now was no longer a fun experience. But at the, but, but at the beginning, I was blinded by it and I thought, this is wonderful and this is going to last forever. This is what I'm going to do. Walter, I, I love that what you said about how much time you spent in the actual arcade itself. We're interested in the practicalities of running an arcade in the golden era. So did you literally open the place up in the morning, close it up each night, and and, and spend most of your day in the place? Well, towards the end, that happened for many, many months. But earlier on, we had a staff who'd open up and run it, and I'd come and maybe put some hours in. But we had workers, and that went on for a while. Uh, But the workers violated the trust, so I found myself having to go there more and more you know, like money would disappear or, or, or just crazy stuff oh. would go on. And one time a, a man came in with a gun into the arcade. But I just smi- I just really? smiled at him. And so he turned around and walked away. Okay. So that's – well, there you go. That solved gun crime right there. Walter Day's smile. Um, well, that's, that that's sounds what the quite... police should do. The police should just, just – maybe if the police smiled at more people, that there will be less crime. Who knows, you know? Okay, that's yet another topic for a podcast. Uh, you've got so many here. So um, you, you, I want to know who was coming into the arcade. I mean, was it just teenage boys or, or were your customers more diverse? It was, it was a marvel. It was a marvel. Lots and lots of businessmen and professionals oh, okay. on their lunch break would be there in their three-piece suits playing Pac-Man or be playing Vanguard or be playing Tutankham. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was a complete cross of grandmothers, whole families would come in. Somewhere, somewhere in our possession or somewhere in, in a photographer's possession, and I've offered to buy it, but he hasn't been able to find it, mm-hmm. is a photograph of a mother with a baby in a crib, a baby in a stroller. You know what a stroller is, of course. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. With her left, with her left hand, she's reaching down with a baby bottle, feeding the baby, and with her right hand, she's <laughs> playing Pac-Man. <laughs> and that we got that. We, there's a photograph right. of that. The modern mother. I, I think. I, I think that would be one of the most iconic photographs that could ever be resurrected from that era. I, I'm. I'm intrigued because I think we perhaps did have being teenage boys uh, ourselves at that time. That maybe it was predominantly that demographic. But tell us more. Then, so did you? Did you develop a bit of a rapport? 
with your customers, oh, if you're having you know business with like yourself, tell us. Would you be playing games alongside them? How did it? Oh work? my god. I'd be up to two in the morning playing games alongside the teenagers. <laughs> oh, I love the games. I had okay. unlimited energy back then. I remember I'm meditating okay. and I'm bragging about how it gives you more energy. Well, it gives you more energy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was up to two in the morning playing the games for a long time because I loved them. And and mm-hmm. I got so good that I was able to get 635000 on Centipede. Mm-hmm. Good school. That's good. And I was able to get 330000 on Miss Pac-Man. Yeah, that's better than me. And, and wasn't it Make Tracks? Didn't you have the world record on Make Tracks at some point? Yes, I had the world record on Make Tracks. I got 1,510,000 once, then 1,580,000 twice. So I got it before anybody else got high. But but So I was the world record holder for maybe around April or May of 1982. And I think that might that status might have lasted for a couple of months. Well, for people starting in two million or three million, so, so I think if I played enough, I think I could get, at least beat my old record from forty years ago, but but it's just <laughs> well, that's but it's just not an investment that's worth my while. No, no, I'm sure, but um, I'm intrigued the way that you talk about the arcade. Then it was more than just a business. It seems like you said it was a place where people would come and meet, and you would meet them. So did you did you feel like you were providing, well? A, you know, like I say, sort of social services. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And with the scoreboard in operation, it was just so much fun. And uh, to mm-hmm. me, it was just one of the funnest parts of my life. It wasn't a business. It was my heart's desire being realized. That's lovely. Now, but hang on, Walter. Any business that involves and attracts the general public, especially if those public are partly teenagers, must have its challenges. Come on. Did you end up having to break up fights or stop kids selling weed behind the asteroids? Cabinets? I had to throw people out. In fact, I came rushing. Uh, the next, the company that was next door, who was my landlord, was an optometrist shop. And I got called early in the morning and told, you have to come and take the sign out of the window. It's attracting a crowd. The customers were having a feud inside the arcade. And so one put a sign uh, about uh, denouncing another one, accusing him of doing very, very, very gross things. And that sign was on the window facing out. And the people next door told me that people were stopping and looking at it and gawking at it in crowds. And so I pulled it off the window. I ran to the back of the arcade, turned off all the games, threw everybody out, and fired all the workers. Okay. <laughs> and so, right. Well. Yeah. So what happened is I, is I retooled, put up a new sign, changed everything around, and started anew uh, a few days later. You, you are making it sound like the Wild West. Is that how it felt Well, sometimes? it was the Wild West of video games simply because it was a new phenomena. It had no rules. Who knows what the expectations were? It was it was it was it was a fan it was a, it was a fantasy journey in a sense. For me, it was a fantasy journey, and there was mm-hmm. and and I and you got to remember, uh, I wasn't trained for this. I wasn't a good businessman. I was doing it completely based on my love of what I was doing, and my devotion to having fun and bringing fun to the public. Well, you, you certainly did that. We we did hear that, you know, you didn't own the machines, so that must have been a bit frustrating. You relied oh, yeah. on people that... bringing them in. But you did get, yeah, you did get half of the money. So come on, you can tell us, was, you know, especially in those early days, was it a lucrative business? Oh, it was very lucrative. At first, it was very lucrative. It was making thousands per week. And on, and on, week, on weekends would be better. And on holidays, it would be better. It was making a lot of money. 
and it was a real hit when other arcades started opening up because they they saw because business would come in and walk around. I could tell that they're specking this out because they want to go open up an arcade. Uh, in fact, okay. in fact, I once went into an arcade. This happened about three different times. Maybe it was two different times. I went into an arcade and I started counting the games, and the uh, and the attendants right. for that arcade came mm. up and said, "I'm sorry, you have to leave." I said, "What? What? What? Why?" He says, "You can't count the games." <laughs> And I said, oh, okay, well, <laughs> I own an arcade, so I'm just curious how big you are. He says, nope, you can't count the games. You have to leave now. Oh. And so what it was is the arcade owner was presuming that because I'm counting the games, that I'm assessing the challenge and that we're about to open up arcade in competition with them. So they presumed that I was a potential competitor. They're checking out the competition to get ready to compete against them. So it was really a paranoid response that they were throwing me out. But I got thrown out numerous times for counting the games. Wow. So how did you go about making Twin Galaxies stand out from the crowd? Well, I tried to have events. I tried to have contests. Then, uh, but, uh, but we also did token. Token wars happened. Token wars were one of the main ways to try and win a following. Seven for a dollar, ten for a dollar, twelve for a dollar. And that really hurt us. That hurt all the arcades. The arcades got engaged in token wars, and that was part of a demise. But that was the main thing. They have a, but also we opened up an ice cream ice cream parlor in Twin Galaxies. Ice cream sold, uh, Twin Galaxies sold ice cream. It was called Big Johnny and Uncle Walter's All American Brand Ice Cream, and there's a famous picture of that lo- logo for that brand. And we had a beautiful ice cream counter and chairs, so it brought people in. So we tried our best to make it attractive, have ice cream, um, sell sell refreshments. And have as, as new of the games as we could manage to get from our just from our uh, vendor, but also do token wars. And the token wars would help a little bit at first, but then they would simply debase uh, the monetary income level uh, coming in every week. So it didn't really help us too much. It was part of the demise of the arcade thing that everybody got embroiled in token wars. In, interesting, Walter. You're, you're um, of course, the one big differentiator that Twin Galaxies had was um, your management of the Twin Galaxies uh, scoreboard. Were you conscious of tracking high scores under the moniker of Twin Galaxies, and and did you think that helped your business in terms of a differentiator, or or were they really sort of two separate things? Well, they really were two separate things. And that is the scoreboard was beginning to become more prominent. The arcade was hurting more and more and more. People would come saying we had uh, one time in a, on a crowded Saturday, a woman comes up to me and says, go over to that man there and say to him, I didn't know that ministers played video games. And so I went over and said that and he laughed and says, oh, my wife's been talking to you. It turns out they were from like Idaho and they were going back east. But they went way out of their way so that they could come to Twin Galaxies just to say that they had been there. Because at that point in time, the promotions were pretty famous through the magazines because video game magazines and joystick magazine and electronic fun, uh, different ones were reporting regularly on scores or, or activities at the scoreboard. And so we were the crossroads. We were being built as the Mecca, the crossroads, uh, mm. the, the Dodge City of video games. Uh, Hmm. of the video game capital of the world. So all these slogans were bantered around all over the place. So people would come, but it wasn't enough to keep us in business. So the scoreboard and the arcade had two realities and two destinies in store for them. Hmm. 
I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it, I, I, it strikes me being candid for a minute that the challenge that that Twin Galaxies has always had as a, as a high scoreboard, and one could argue probably still does have in today's world, is how do you make it commercially viable? Because the manufacturers weren't weren't sort of putting their hands in in their pockets to to a great extent to sort of monitor and track high scores. So I just wonder, as as you would you know doing the day-to-day of the of the scoreboard whether you actually saw commercial potential in it or whether you just kept going until maybe something sort of popped out of the woodwork of ah this is what we do with the scoreboard in order to earn a crust well for 90 percent of the time the arcade supported the scoreboard because the scoreboard was not financially feasible but it was something i loved and something i believed in i don't think people realize how much i loved it and how much i believed in it uh, how much I cared to see for it be there for everybody to have as a free service. Mm. And it was a free service. Uh, anytime that someone tried to charge for submission of scores, that would just cause lots of problems and just hurt the reputation of the scoreboard. Essentially, right. essentially, it was a free service to exist for the betterment of the whole hobby because I believed in the hobby. I believed in competitive video game playing as a viable sport that was real, that was genuine, which needed... Every every blessing for the incarnation to grow, for the video game competitive uh, international arena to grow. When Twin Galaxies was created, I essentially... Now remember, people were playing... When people would play video games in their local arcade, they might get the high score for that arcade, but they don't know if they're the best in the world. All they know is that they're the best in town. And that would be from every... And, and every arcade would have a local scoreboard, and they keep track... I mean, scoreboards weren't new. Every arcade had their own in-house scoreboard. Every arcade was tracking scores because it was a great promotion. And plus, the kids loved it and wanted to know if they were the best. So that reality was out there. What happened is Twin Galaxies created a proxy, a set of rules, a set of circumstances, a set of uh, submission procedures, and a, and a set set of standings that people would go against so that all, this, all the arcades would be united in one international esports arena so that when you got a high score in your local arcade you could find out you could find out if there's the highest score in the world by connecting twin galaxies and then going through our protocol which was not very good back then because too many people were misleading us and cheating but if you go through the protocol at least and we'll be able to determine who the new champion is so you can see that twin galaxies was a big deal it united and that's why I'm firm when I say that Twin Galaxies was the birth of esports because it was the first organization to unite the gamers and the arcades and the industry in a common international esports arena by, by through the proxy of our rules and our procedures and our protocol, have every arcade be able to compete against any other arcade. You see the point? Uh, totally, Walter. I, and I, I would agree with all of that. And um, it, it's interesting. This is this is something I, I put in my book, um, Missile Commander, available from all good bookstores. Um, one, the, the For me, the thing that many people overlook when it comes to Walter Day is that you weren't so much about the scores and you weren't so much about, you know, video games. You, you, what you did with Twin Galaxies and what you've continued to do, and I think the legacy that you've left that I think you can be proud of is that you brought people together. And that's that's the thing that I think many people overlook be, because they look at the scoreboard and they say, oh, well, you know, all these old scores, 
you know, they weren't accurate. Walter was conned. He was too much of a nice guy. And it's like, you're all missing the point. You know, Walter's remit um, was to bring people together and, and to give people a sense of community and belonging. And, and, and that, that is something that I certainly identify pretty quickly after, after meeting you and witnessing a couple of tournaments and interacting with the scoreboard. That's what the heart of Twin Galaxies is about. Well, you're exactly hit the nail on the head. You have just identified who I am. I was all about the people. I was all about the society. I was all about the community. I was all about making the community an actual popular culture that was nourished mm. and thrived and had balance and, uh, and, and would expand its sphere of influence to embrace, to embrace the entire world of popular culture. So that, so I was, I was trying to make, I was trying to make an infrastructure that could be the underlying skeleton for what all this stuff could grow into. Sure. I totally agree. And, and uh, you know, I think the, the problem with today and the internet is that everybody's got an opinion and everybody wants everything to be black and white and everybody wants Victor Alley's, you know, 30-year-old Missile Command score to be scrutinised, you know, and, and removed from the scoreboard, which, I mean, in my view, is a, an, an absolute travesty. Because it wasn't about did Victor Alley get that score on his own or did he have help or did the machine reset? Where's the video? It's actually the score was submitted. It was acknowledged by you guys. It was acknowledged even by Atari. And it set a line in the sand and it gave Victor Sandberg 30 years later an opportunity to prove something, which was that score can be achieved and it can be beaten. And he got a load of press for it. And Twin Galaxies got a load of press for it. And, and th these are the things which annoy me about, you know, Twin Galaxies 2022 is that the guys on there are all about, is this score valid? Or is it not? No, no, it, it totally isn't the point. You know, it's put an asterisk next to it if you want to. It's it's part of the history of com competitive video games, whether the score is accurate or not. You know, Steve Sanders' make-believe Donkey Kong score, it, it doesn't matter. It's it's part of the story. It's it, it's added some texture and colour to the um, to the history of competitive video games, and 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 that's the point that that I think many many people uh, miss. Uh, Walter, I'm very conscious of time, so I'm I'm going to hand over to uh, Richie May. Yeah, yeah, Walter, thank you. I'm aware you've got like a, a hard out, as a podcaster say, in, in probably about five minutes. Um, but while we're talking about scores, Walter, it would be remiss, um, not necessarily contradicting what Tony's just um, eloquently um, uh, conveyed just now. But let me, let, let's talk quickly, because people like to gossip. Let's talk about Billy, Billy Mitchell. Um, you, you've got a close friendship with Billy and your partnership with him over the years has been, um, you know, the subject of much debate. Um, what's your what's your take for the record on, you know, recent events, recent allegations of cheating? Um, let's be frank that those are the allegations. I personally don't follow this story too closely, but I know a lot of people do. I know a lot of our listeners do. So, Walter, take the mic. Well, first of all, I've watched Billy Mitchell grow up. And I can't believe what a good person he's grown into. He's so kind and considerate to other people and so helpful. So I take my hat off to Billy for the good person he's grown into being. So three cheers for Billy Mitchell. As far as the allegations, you know, the, the idea that he had MAME and stuff like that, I just can't see it. See, I'm prepared to testify that he didn't use MAME because I never saw him involved with MAME. I never saw him talk about MAME. He didn't like MAME. He was against MAME. And... And also, he's kind of like 
not competent with technical stuff, and he simply could not have engineered uh, this incredibly elaborate cheating method of having safe states or something like that. So I don't know what's going on with the machinery and why it appeared as it is, but all I know is that I'm going to testify that I never saw any evidence of him cheating. And so, therefore, that's my testimony. So, and uh, I will be one of the people testifying in the trial for whatever that's worth. But, uh, but uh, Billy Mitchell's a, a very good person, and I hope you all get to know him more and more and more as time goes on. Yep, sure. No, that's fair enough, Walter. It's not, it's not something we want to delve into. To be honest, I was just curious for your official take, as it were. I mean, The King of Kong itself as a film was seen as something of an iconic documentary um, and arguably gave classic video gaming a shot in the arm would, would you agree with that assessment Walter that movie is larger than life when yeah. when a couple of famous movie critics did an analysis of the 3,000 movies of the last decade to try and evaluate the greatest of the greatest uh, they put uh, King of Kong as number 29 amongst the 30 greatest films of that period I mean it's, it's larger than life it's it's fun it's uh, uh, I feel hurt by it it wasn't honest no however of course not, I just no. I just have to I just have to live with the fact that it, it put me and Billy and the whole culture on the map. So we'll just have to accept it as the uh, as the bit of grace that it had with it. Yeah, no, understood. Have you kept tabs on Twin Galaxies, Walter? Um, I mean, again, that's um, probably another area that, you know, Twin Galaxies as it stands today, we don't really have time uh, to go into all that. And to be honest, I think it's a little bit boring, but have you kept tab on the name, on the brand, and since you stepped away all those years ago, since the actual arcade closed its doors? No, I don't, only vaguely do I get information on Twin Galaxies, but I don't keep tab on it. I think I go there once a month for a second, just out of curiosity. Yeah. But no, I'm not part of their community, and I don't think they consider me part of their community. <laughs> but it sounds like you moved on, Walter. I mean, you're you're a man of many many interests. Well, we never got to talk about the music, but that's what my heart's into now. Yeah. Well, why don't we do that, Walter? I mean, we we I mean, let's close up. I I, I go into a music studio in a little bit. We're working on ten songs. That are going to be, uh, I had a beautiful girlfriend I fell in love with, and she suddenly one night announced that she'd secretly been seeing a friend, so the relationship ended, and it caused so much heartache that out of the clear blue, I started hearing music play inside. It was like I was channeling a radio station, but it was all music that didn't exist. It was all my songs. I claimed those songs, and I sang them into a comp- uh, uh, tape recorder, and I wrote the lyrics down, stuff like that. And now all these years later, 35 years later, I have a studio who believes in it, some backers who believe in it, and we're actually producing 10 of my songs. Oh, good luck to you, Walter. Um, Walter, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Um, it, it really is an honor to speak to you. I wish we had more time. Perhaps we'll do a part two at some point. Thank you. Walter, the stories flow out of you like the river you spoke about at the start of this interview. I would also just like to give a plug not only to your music career, but the trading cards collection that you put a huge amount of time, effort and love in. Uh, I think Tony's on two of them. I'm on one and we're waiting for Richie to get his own card. Oh, I'm fine with that one. But thank you, Paul. Absolutely. We got to do a Richie card. So that's where I'll leave it. I'll leave it because I actually have to go now. But we're going to do a Richie card. So stay tuned, okay? Walter, thank you so much. And, and you know, thank you for shedding more light into um, actually operating a physical arcade, which, which is something we were very keen to talk to someone about. And um, you uh, uh, shared some great stories. Always a pleasure to, to catch up. Thanks, Walter. Thank you very much. Bye, you guys. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, 
and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank you.